the woman to still have any mystery left for a man after living in a place like this for three days? I don't know. Darling, you don't need mystery. You've got something much better, something more alluring. What? Me. You. <laughs> Well, you see, it's New Year's Eve, Aunt Catherine. The old battle axe. Shut up. Excuse me, Aunt Catherine. I was talking to the dog. This is Aunt Hattie. How are you? Don't mumble, young man. Don't mumble. How are you? She's deaf. You're telling me. Speaking of classic Hollywood movies, um, I believe I mentioned in my in the last podcast, uh, I watched The, th the Thin Man. Right, and I, you know, as I, I fell in love with uh, Myrna Loy watching that movie. It was like one of those things where, oh my God, where have I, how have I not ever seen this woman before? It was like one of those moments I had where, um, I, I've had occasionally watching a movie, and sometimes, frankly, I'll watch a movie and I'll see an actress, and like there'll be a little bit more of like a sexual attraction to her, like uh, Eva Green and The Dreamers, or something, and. Eva Green, for those of you who don't know, Google her, have fun. Um, but Myrna Loy is that classic, beautiful actress. Like I, She was even somebody who, uh, I read that women would actually go to plastic surgeons and want to look like her the most. Uh, that's not disturbing. <laughs> no, not in the least. Um, but also... But she had now, wit, too. I mean... Oh, lots of... She is great timing, Especially with someone like William Powell, and he's also a really great uh, uh, comic actor. Uh, but what I did was, so I decided that, all right, I want to see more movies with these people. So I took out some stuff from the library, and I watched uh, three movies with William Powell and Myrna Loy. And I hope to watch even more soon. Uh, I mean, maybe I'll... <laughs> We could we could keep going all night. No, we did that last time. We got to keep going. Okay, um, but in this movie, uh, it's it's uh, another entertaining romp with uh, Nick and Nora. Uh, this time they go back to their home in San Francisco. Uh, I mean, first thing they they walk in and Nick is just like, oh, I want to have just peace and quiet. And they open up the door and there's a party going on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what can you do? All uh, right. But um, this time they get involved in a case involving Nora's family, who are kind of like blue bloods. And um, I believe it's Nora's cousin's husband, or Nora's cousin's fiance, gets killed. And, you know, I, like just like last time, you know, Nick doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He's done with crime cases. Uh, but little by little, of course, the details in the case sort of involve him. And Nora uh, pushes him into it. Yeah, and this time a lot of it takes place over uh, New Year's Eve, and uh, you know there's some again. There. Yes, I mean it's the sequel. You know there are things in the movie, unfortunately, that are a little. They feel a little. So, it, so it's just one of those sequels that's kind of a retread of the first. I would say that in some ways, it's it reminded me a little bit of how if it, it, it reminded me a little bit of how I felt about. Iron Man 2 in relation to Iron Man 1. It's like, wow, Iron Clarify. Man... Clarify. Well, Iron Man 1 really impressed me with just a fresh take on something that I thought I was kind of used to. The second one comes out, and it's now a little more familiar. Um, I see you're trying to do some different things. 
but it's still sort of the same, the same old, same old. Um, what makes it stand out, of course, is that, you know, like with Iron Man, you have the actors who are, you know, really spot on and have good chemistry. And, you know, where in Iron Man you have Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, here you have William Powell and Myrna Loy. Um, this time you throw in uh, James Stewart, a young James Stewart into the mix, uh, who plays uh, uh, one of, I don't think she, I think he plays a husband to one of uh, Nora's cousins. And um, there's some interesting things that happen with him uh, that I'm not going to talk about. Um, the movie's still a lot of fun uh, in the tradition of the first movie. You know, lots of, you know, who done it, lots of witty one-liners, especially William Powell, who's just having a blast. Um, there, are, there are a couple of things that I felt dragged the movie a little bit. Like, they make the dog a character more. <laughs> the dog has a couple of scenes where, like, the dog is talking sort of with the other dog, his dog family, and, like, chasing <laughs> off, like, a male dog, dog suitor for his female dog. It seems like the thin man <laughs> is jumping the shark. Not quite. No, no, no. That... I, I, I'm a little worried that's, that ends up happening in other movies. Like, well, at the end, well, one thing I liked though, was that <clears throat> I know in the next movie, uh, I think that's another thin man. They have a baby and they set that up in this movie, but they do it. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting how they do it because midway through the movie, there's like a scene where Nick and Nora are kind of like in their beds, you know, they're sitting there with drinks and, and Nora kind of makes this offhand remark, like, I wonder if I could see a baby picture of you. I bet you're a cute baby. And they kind of just leave it at that, and it seems like one of those cute asides. But it Sorry I off. brought it up. But it, Yeah. But it pays off at the very end, because then, like, you know, she's knitting, like, a baby sock. And Nick's like, what are you knitting there? Looks like we're having another one. Oh. So, I kind of appreciated that. Like, they could have just thrown in at the very end of the movie... Oh, we're having a baby, but they threw like at least a little groundwork in the middle. Just a tiny um, bit. Yeah, and like I said, there are a lot of familiar things. Like at the end of the movie, the climax involves bringing everyone together involved in the case once again, so that Nick can, you know, hash through all the details once again, which is helpful because the the sto- the plot gets a little convoluted at times, um, involving a lot of different details. Uh, but again, a lot of fun characters, you know, still classic uh, detective comedy combination. Um, so I would recommend it. It's not as great as the Thin Man one, but it follows in that tradition well. Um, what was the second movie okay. with Powell and Marvel? Okay, so now we get to these other two movies. Um, the interesting thing with Powell and Loy is they first worked together in 1934, and in one year they make three movies together. Wow. So, yeah, they worked a lot. I mean, in the Hollywood system, you know, you act in a lot of stuff if you wanted to keep on working and make yourself known. And um, so the other two movies I watched, the first one is, and I think I mentioned this in the last podcast as well, is Manhattan Melodrama. And this is the movie which uh, John Dillinger saw before he was gunned down. Um, The movie itself is, uh, like it would say right in the title, melodrama, set in Manhattan. Um, it involves these uh, two guys who uh, kind of meet when they're kids, and tragedy uh, sort of brings them together as kids. Uh, 
And it, it's interesting because it reminded me of another movie from the 30s with James Cagney and I forget the other actor's name, but it was called Angels with Dirty Faces. Uh, which From Home Alone. <laughs> well, that was Angels with Filthy Souls. Really? I th- yeah, it wasn't called Angels with Dirty Faces. Oh, okay. But I think it was Filthy Souls to make it a little different. Um, that would keep the change, you filthy animal. <laughs> what I love about this scene is that this his scheme for ordering pizza and having this movie answer for him in Home Alone could not possibly work in real life. Because people know the difference between a voice on a television and a voice who's talking to you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, okay, so in Angel's Dirty Faces, you have T- a story Take that, where, John Hughes. Take that, dead man. Because uh, John Hughes has passed away. Uh, I'm sure well, then it you. makes this for easier for me. Yes. Um, but in Angel's Dirty Faces, you have a story where James Cagney, uh, like he's he and this other guy are childhood friends. James Cagney is the gangster, and his friend is now a priest. And so they kind of have to try to... But that's also like, their, uh, but that's also friendship. like the Public Enemy, where where Jim, where Jimmy Cagney is uh, becomes the gangster and his brother is is like a World War One veteran who doesn't approve at all of him being a gangster. I suppose so. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen the Public Enemy in quite a while, and uh, but I'll take your word for it. I only remember a few distinct scenes from that. And, and it's also like, what is that one? Uh, with with uh, God, Little Caesar. It's the same thing. Like. <laughs> Like uh, yeah, Edward G. Robinson a becomes a huge, like a big mo- time mobster, and his former partner just like becomes a nightclub dancer, and he and he, yeah. he gets this big career, and it's the tension between these two friends or brothers or whoever. Yeah. It's like the one who walks a straight path, yeah. and then the one who and, goes into the life of crime. And in Manhattan melodrama, you get uh, Clark Gable, who plays the, the sort of guy who grows up and is uh, more of like a gambler. Sort of gangster. He ends up kind of becoming a gangster, but he starts off more like a gambler type. And William Powell, who has become like a hotshot prosecutor, and now he's rising up in the ranks, and he's probably going to... He ends up becoming governor later on in the movie. And Myrna Loy... Spoiler alert. uh, Well, you know, this movie's (laughs) been around for 80 years. Hopefully people have seen it. Well, yeah, but there are people who were, like, just born yesterday. That doesn't mean they have to have seen Manhattan Melodrama. If they're babies watching Manhattan Melodrama, then... Those are some trouble. cool babies, but... I know. But, all right, so spoilers ahead, people. Um, Myrna Loy is involved with uh, sort of both guys, but she starts off more like Clark Gable's uh, sort of mall. Uh, but uh, but then she kind of, she goes out on a night in the town with William Powell. He kind of has, you know, Blackie, uh, played by Clark Gable, asks William Powell to help help him out and show her around. And they end up kind of obviously connecting more. Um, but what I liked was that it wasn't about that. It easily could have become a love triangle thing, and it wasn't really about that. It was oh. more about how uh, Clark Gable goes down this sort of dark gangster path, and, and, you know, as you mentioned, that tension between the friends comes up, and obviously William Powell's playing a prosecutor. What's he going to do about his friend who, you know, may be doing some unsavory things, but he's not a bad person? Screw him. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're talking spoken like a man from the Hayes Code, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a really it's a really strong movie. I was surprised because I was just kind of expecting like a ho hum, 
melodrama. Um, but it has a lot of heart. Uh, Clark Gable and William Powell work really well together. Uh, Mark Myrna Loy works great with both of them. Uh, Myrna Loy also worked a lot with Clark Gable in the 30s. Um, you know, and her, her charisma with both those actors is electrifying. Um, and it has a really touching ending, too. Like, on a couple of... It has a couple of scenes that sort of end the movie, and it brings really strong closure for all the characters. Like, and it's, um... Like, the writing ends up... It's not like the acting has to rise that much above the writing, but the acting enhances the writing. Okay. That sort of case. Uh, so we have that movie, which, by the way, was also directed by the guy that did the Thin Man movies, W.S. Van Dyke. Um, then we come to the second movie, which I watched right after I watched After the Thin Man, like the same night, and it made for a pretty surreal experience. Uh, it was a movie called Evelyn Prentice, and this is a another melodrama. This one, um, William Powell and Myrna Loy are husband and wife. Once again, he's a lawyer. Um, and um, no, no best friend this time. Uh, he's this kind of guy who's sort of at work all the time, uh, can't really spend that much time at home with, uh, you know, his wife and their little kid. He's a Mr. Banks. I suppose so. Like Mr. Banks from... Mary Poppins. Oh, okay. I was because there are a lot of Mr. Banks. Well, there's Saving Mr. Banks, and then there's, like, I don't know. <laughs> there's so many Mr. Oh, Banks, uh, like one of them. <laughs> my brain just... All right, so talk uh, about the movie. Movie, Jack. Tough. Concentrate okay, okay, on okay, movies. Okay, 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 I am concentrating on movies. I concentrated on the wrong one, and now my brain's fried. Okay, Ellen Prentice. <clears throat> uh, like, so, it's, you know, their marriage is fine, in a way. You know, it's not like neither person is really bad to the other. It's just that, again, he has a lot of these cases he, that take up his time. Um, and he has one woman who's almost kind of like a stalker. I mean, he kind of like follow. she cuts sort of follows him like on a trip to Boston. Um, the movie's pretty short, so they don't really spend that much time on any one thing. What happens though, is that Myrna Loy is sort of off on her own. Like she's at a nightclub and this guy who's this sort of, like skeezy poet sort of dude tries to hit on her and you know become friendly with her and and for a moment she kind of falls for it and they're not like romantically involved but you know she comes sort of close to having an affair but she sort of stops herself short um and then uh like she kind of writes this guy some letters um not expressing her love per se but just sort of expressing sort of personal things and he threatens to bring it out to the press and so Evelyn Prentice doesn't want that and can't trust poets and then outside uh, like in the hallway you hear gunshots or you just hear one gunshot and uh so now like the the guy is dead um but did she kill him or what now is the lawyer gonna have to stand up for Evelyn Prentice does she tell like that she did she think she killed this guy, but she did, but did she didn't? It's, it's a really, it's it sounds like I'm making it very sound complicated. It's not. It's very simplistic, and the surreal thing for me is I I watch a, after the Thin Man, where Myrna Loy and William Powell, their their chemistry is just solid. They're they're a great team, not just a comedy team. They look great together on screen. They have really fast 
dialogue, and they work well as this couple who really, you can tell they love each other. Then you go and watch Evelyn Prentice, and it's much more dramatic. It's a little creaky. Um, the actors really have to try hard to make it watchable, and it is, but it's it's pretty dated in some ways. Mm. Um, it ends with a lot of like courtroom confessions and last minute surprises and twists. <laughs> it's it's the kind of movie that I could tell watching it. They had to put the the studio decided right, we have to put something out there. It could be whatever. Uh, it could be this. Just put William Powell and Myrna Loy in it and shuffle it out there fast. Yeah. It was, um, it's more or less just a vehicle for them to make money for the studio. Yeah, it's a vehicle for them. and uh, Which in itself is not a bad thing considering their uh, considering their talents. But, no. But still, it doesn't and, measure up. Yeah, and it gets to show... Like, they show subtlety where... Like, the script wouldn't really exactly give it to them, but they somehow sneak it in. And I appreciated that. And William Powell, he could have hammed it up at a couple of points, but he keeps it more grounded and realistic, and that I appreciate as well. So okay, yeah. So if you want, guys, you know, check out after the Thin Man Manhattan melodrama. Maybe check out Evelyn Prentice. If but you... only if you love uh, <laughs> William Powell and Myrna Loy. Yeah. Like uh, this sucker right here. Hey, there's a sucker born every minute. Right. So uh, an- another movie I watched last week, The Dirty Dozen. I had never seen The Dirty Dozen. So this is where Lee Marvin comes in. Yeah, and I didn't so, expect it to come to. I didn't expect it to be so much about the training of these uh, of these recruits, and I think the kind of the way they get the way they shoehorn the nickname Dirty Dozen into the movie is a little kind of groan inducing. What? Oh! Right? Face? Eddie's! Now, what did I say to you? Or maybe you don't understand English. Sergeant, what's the matter, number 11? I got a pain. (laughs) Where does it hurt? Well, I'll tell you, it's... uh... (laughs) I wish you would. Do it correctly, please. Oh, I don't have to say, sir. uh, To you or anyone else, and I don't have to march either. And I know the rules. Why don't you have to march? (laughs) <laughs> because condemned men don't have to drill. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it, mister. What's your name, son? Eleven. <laughs> His name is Franco, sir. Yeah. They refuse to sh- they refuse to shave and so like the the MP guardian says, "Well, if you Dirty dozen won't shave. Then that, yeah. you know, but that'd be kind of like I, they, you, they never do it. They never do it in the movie. But that'd be kind of like if they worked in Inglorious Bastards at one point into yeah. Inglorious Bastards, and they actually and to give that movie credit, they never do that. They just call them the bastards. Yeah, uh, but the well, the Inglorious Bastards is etched onto the stock of one of the guys' rifle rifles. Oh, okay. But no one says it out loud. Right. The, the, the group is just called the Bastards. But uh, get let's get back to the other Inglorious Bastards. The original Inglorious Bastards. This movie is... A spelled of... with an A instead of an E. This movie... Um, uh, what we could say about The Jury Dozen is that it can really look serve as... Not the prototype, but certainly one of the prototypes for 
the quote men on a mission movie. Right, I but mean, also you have the guns of Navarro. Yeah, and that came out before Dirty Dozen, so there was a precedent. But but the, this but is the, the gun, one that you yeah. really remember because you have it's grittier. It's grittier. And I remember thinking, because after a while, the men don't shave, so they have these full beards. Yeah. And that, and that portrayal of American GIs as being these, of being these unshaved kind of dirty people is much more in line with any photograph you see of a World War II, uh, of an American serviceman in World War II. Yeah, because I, he, they like, probably he, didn't get a lot of time to shave. No, because you're being shot at. <laughs> yeah. Uh... And I was, and I, and I realized, like, even you have people like Trini Lopez, you know, who plays the guitar, but he still looks the part of of an American soldier because he just has this giant beard. <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, well, although oddly enough, like Telly Savalas, yeah, I, I don't remember him having a beard. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> for me to remember that too. Um, I, I mean, I mean, later on they shave, so I guess like. I don't even remember if he had a beard. He probably did, but this is not the point. Uh, but <laughs> it's a grittier movie than... Like, Guns and Navarone came first. That's like the original Men on the Mission movie. Yeah. But that's like, but that's still like, there aren't as but that's many still like the that. older, the older Hollywood where, that's you know, where, where the British officers are, are, are these gentlemen and you have Gregory Peck and you have, uh, Anthony Quinn and it's, yes. and it's like, uh, it's still very much this big sort Did of epic. David Niven just I didn't, but okay, yeah, David Niven's in it and, and he's just going, and he's going to always have this perfectly manicured, uh, waxed mustache. Yes, uh, the uh, person I remember in the Dirty Dozen was uh, John Cassavetes. Now, remi- oh, and uh, let's not forget young Donald Sutherland with no facial hair. Yes, and that's <laughs> the complete opposite of what he ended up doing in Kelly's Heroes, where he had very much the facial hair, if you remember. Very. Ha- I haven't seen Kelly's Heroes. Ooh, well, that's one you should check out. But uh, you know, think of any think of any picture of Donald Sutherland. You you probably cannot imagine him without some sort of mustache or beard. Yeah, uh, I've seen him without facial hair. He, he's he what he didn't Nash. have it in Mash. And but also, uh, but I mean, every, Ca- but like think about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He had a mustache. <laughs> I mean, he was in the Hunger Games and now and you know white hair and, and a beard like Animal House. He JFK. Uh, he didn't have facial. Oh yeah, you're right. Uh, what's the other one? Don't look now. It's like oh, yeah, he does have a mustache. Most of the time, Donald Sutherland has a mustache. He is kind did of. Did I mention Animal stash. House? Yes. Okay, good. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's in. Yeah, he doesn't have uh, facial hair in that. Right, but I don't, I don't want to talk too much about this. But I said it's like it's a grid. It's at a time when World War II was being shown in a much grittier way, a lot bloodier, a lot more violent. Uh, the ending mission is not that noble sort of. No, uh, I remember thing. that. It's this. It's actually this involves, kind of twisted thing that they decide to do. Does it involve a lot of like them going like underground, no. or something? But there, the It involves. It that. involves a bunker. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. Um, no, I just. I, but I, it's clearly the inspiration for the. Uh, so many of those it, movies. It's it's an inspiration for the original Inglorious Bastards, which was you know a really good movie. You that wasn't. I didn't expect that movie to be as good. As yeah, it was. I didn't expect *Inglorious Bastards* to be as good as it was. I mean, it looks like this. It, <clears> it looks, looks like another Italian exploitation piece of garbage. Which, and it is an Italian exploitation. 
movie, but it's not a piece of garbage. No, they put it's some like, more, it's they put this, more work in. It's like one of the best, it's like one of the better of the spaghetti westerns, but just in World War II. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, Dirty Dozen. It's a classic. And, see it. and definitely uh, John Cassavetes, I just have to mention. He, he was the one who's like giving a lot of lip to Oh, yeah. I remember the character. And you know him because he was also in Rosemary's Baby. Right. Okay. Um, all right. So let me move on. Uh, talking about, you know, m- movies for men. You know, real guy movies that we were just talking about a dirty dozen. Um, I just saw uh, in the theater Kingsman. The Secret Service. Right. Um, this movie, uh, you know, you may or may not know this, is actually a comic book movie. Was, I, I, I know about that. Yeah, it was based on a comic book, and I haven't read it yet, but I've read stuff by this author, uh, Mark Millar, and drawn by Dave Gibbons. Um, the movie, Who, Yeah, Dave Gibbons did Watchmen, didn't he? He drew Watchmen, that's right. And I, I hope to maybe check out this book soon. Um and now uh, I hear a ship out in the sea. Uh, <laughs> what are you doing here? Come on. Nonsense. We haven't finished our drinks. After you nicked his car, Dean says you're fair game. Um, listen, boys. I've had a rather emotional day. So whatever your beef with Eggsy is, I'd appreciate it enormously if you could just leave us in peace until I finish this lovely pint of Guinness. You should get out of the way, Granddaddy. You'll get hurt and all. He ain't joking. You should go. Excuse me. If you're looking for another rent boy, they're on the corner of Smith Street. Manners maketh man. Do you know what that means? Then let me teach you a lesson. All right. The movie is about uh, this, uh, you know, underground secret service uh, that runs out of uh, a group of tailors who have been working since, uh, like, the 19th century. They, they have, like, a whole backstory that uh, Colin Firth explains. Uh, what happens, As he does. As he does. Um, not unlike, it's interesting that it comes from Mark Millar, because in a way it reminded me a little bit of the movie Wanted, uh, which is also based on one of his books, but I liked Kingsman much more, and that one, you also had a character... This film is, though, um, directed by the same guy who did Kick-Ass. Uh, well, Kick-Ass, but more, but more importantly for me was X-Men First Class. Right. Uh, Matthew Vaughn, um... And that was the movie that, if I had just seen Kick-Ass, I would be a little bit more wary, because I wasn't, like, a huge fan of Kick-Ass. There were some good things about it, you know, Nicolas Cage being one of them, but, uh, and we'll get more to Nicolas Cage later. But, um, but this movie, what you get is that uh, the Secret Service is uh, much like the classic Bond spy thing, but, like, in the 60s. Not so much, you know, James Bond today, which is much grittier and much more serious. This is more like the James Bond where there is a little bit of that this seriousness. Is... But on the other hand, you have a villain, uh, in this case played by Samuel Jackson, who has an incredibly goofy plot to uh, take over the world. Uh, but in this case, it's also trying to do a commentary uh, 
and it's all it's kind of funny because it takes pot shots at a lot of different targets uh like liberal and uh, conservative but samuel jackson's character is this he's a guy with the lip and uh <laughs> that's his sort of quirk uh I, I like your smile you're giving me like you're not sure what to make of that um but his whole scheme is that he's an environmentalist billionaire and he creates this uh like SIM card that he gives out for free to like the world, which no one seems to question, which seems a little odd, but Hey, whatever I'm giving away for a free SIM card. Um, I'm not at all like the Joker and Batman who's going to give out free money and lure you in to poison you. But, um, people are stupid. Yeah. People are kind of stupid all around the world. They use the SIM card. And what Samuel Jackson's plan is, is that, he looks at the Earth as, you know, becoming much too populated, and, you know, it's going to kill the planet. So we need to, you know, kill millions and hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people, just so the Earth can kind of regrow itself. Um, right. of that kind of mindset. Uh, and it's up to the Secret Service to stop him. Um, in the and movie, apparently no one else got any wind of this. No, well, no, well, the thing is, he, uh, in the movie, he kind of... He uh, sort of uh, programs a lot of world leaders um, who somehow think his idea is good. There are also people who think he's totally crazy, and he imprisons them. Um, there are there, don't get me wrong. There are some holes in this movie, um, but what makes it work is that I mean, you have the main plot where this guy, this young guy, becomes uh, sort of tapped uh, by Colin Firth. Uh, this young guy is a new actor. His name is, like, Taron Edgerton. I haven't seen him in every, anything, so he's probably... You'll probably see him a lot soon. Um, and he gets recruited by Colin Firth to join this organization. And, you know, they're basically super spies. You sort of see in a sequence, uh, Colin Firth is in a bar, and you have these basically, like, soccer hooligans, you know, fucking with him. And he... Um, you know, he's about to leave, and they say just, like, one thing this about... This scene is in the trailer. Yeah, they say, like, you know, and he closes the door and says, Manas maketh man. And uh, then proceeds to whip their asses. Right. Um, the visual style of this movie is really kinetic and awesome. You can tell the what the action is going on, uh, but it has sort of a hyper-stylization. I feel like Matthew Vaughn, like, when I saw Kick-Ass... Part of what was annoying was he was trying a little too hard to be cool, but it wasn't feeling authentic in a way. Like, he was kind of aping Tarantino, in a sense. Um, here, I feel like he has a little bit more of his own sort of cool aesthetic now. Like, it feels more of a continuation of X-Men First Class, which also had its own interesting style. Yeah. And that, you know, and you could tell this guy really likes 60s spy action I mean, X-Men First Class had that as well. X-Men took place in the, in the 60s. <laughs> it and, uh, and had a lot of the same sort of spy elements. Yeah. And the thing about this, the Kingsman is It's that just that the spies happen to be the X-Men. Yeah. You have a movie that is kind of riding a line that could fall into either side a little too easily. That it's, trying, it's parodying this stuff. It's having sort of, you know, this goofy, over-the-top villain... Um, that, like, at one point, he, like, Samuel Jackson has over Colin Firth for dinner, um, and, like, you know, there's kind of, like, intense music, because you're, like, he's about to serve dinner, and you don't know what's under the, 
the the plate for food, he opens it and it's McDonald's. <laughs> it's very more sensitive. spoilers, by the way. It's uh, well, it's not like giving away what happened. It's well, it's more like a little detail. Um, you're rolling your eyes at me. <laughs> All right, but point is, there's a lot. There's a lot of great action, and uh, Colin Firth is really strong in the movie. I didn't expect that I would ever want to see him kicking people's asses like this. I usually <laughs> saw him as, you know, the King's Speech. Yeah. He's more of, you know, that, that regal British actor who's, um, you know, in important movies. This isn't exactly an important movie, but you can tell he's having a lot of fun. Samuel Jackson is having a lot of fun in a villain role, and this time, unlike the spirit, he actually works in it. Oh, uh, the spirit. Um, you know, this in this one, he creates sort of a quirky persona, but it's it's just at that level of over the top where you don't feel sick to your stomach. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a fun movie. It's not great. I mean, it gets really weird in some parts and very as par for the course of Mark Millar. If you've seen Wanted or Kick Ass, it gets incredibly ridiculously grossly violent in the last act um but if you like seeing a sort of self-aware spy movie uh michael kane also has a small part which is kind of cool oh and all the characters in the kingsman are named after the knights of the round table cool so that's part of what they're the kingsman you know. so um yeah so check it out all right all right last movie i've seen uh milk yeah yeah. Uh, got Milk? Milk! Sorry, the story <laughs> of Harvey Milk. And yes, it, this, now, this you've, have you be, seen it? Yes. Now, let's let people know because there are actually, there are two films about Harvey Milk. One is one, a documentary a and documentary, one is this sort is of called, docudrama. Yeah. The, the, the trial, I think it was called The Trials of Harvey Milk. The Life and Times of Harvey yeah, Milk. Yeah, sorry, The Life and Times which, of Harvey uh, Milk. Which actually gets a, a credit mention in the in the credits of Milk. Yeah, but uh, Milk is a biopic uh, which starred, uh, it was actually... Sean big, Penn. Sean Penn is Harvey Milk. And it's interesting that Sean Penn is, uh, is in this because Sean Penn was also in All the King's Men. And, like, I only saw the trailers for All the King's Men, and, like, it's basically, like, he's giving all these fiery speeches, but then there's a moment in Milk where he has to give a speech to a large audience, and I still saw that. Hmm. It, I, it's obviously Sean Penn giving this, you know, passionate speech, uh, but still, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but still, well, they were, he, he was in the same speech. movie. Uh, well, no, I think that when I saw, I saw a scene from All the are you talking about All the King's Men? Yes. Yeah. All the King's Men. Yeah, the C- yeah the remake of the 49 movie. That felt, to me, for some reason, a little goofier. I don't know. Something about him giving a speech in that movie, he seemed very over the top. Whereas in Milk, what I like about he's him very so laid back. this movie, he's, t- he's enjoying himself a little bit more in this role, which fits because, you know, Harvey Milk was a gay man, but he was someone who enjoyed life he recognized he saw that there was a lot of hardship going on within the gay community and wanted to stop it in his role as a i think he was an assemblyman uh, he was a city supervisor a city supervisor thank you and here's the thing he it, it shows him becoming a better politician and he yes. becomes a, gr- a great politician uh yeah and, he, and how he runs for office several times yes and 
and he became <laughs> really popular in San Francisco. He became like a very beloved figure, right? Um, except unless if you were Josh Brolin, right? Now let's here's the th- I don't want to talk too much about this, but I do want to talk about Josh Brolin and and uh, Dan White. Yes. I, I want to talk about Dan White because I was trying to figure out. I was trying to figure out this character. Is okay. he because when I saw it after the movie, I'm like, man, Dan White was just a terrible politician. I mean, talk, you could talk about how he was a bad person, or yeah. you know, or the fact that he killed two people. But <laughs> right, I mean, up until that point, I mean, he's uh, he comes off as just uh, a rather pathetic figure. He can't get any of he can't get any of his resolutions passed. He can't he can't uh, he can't accomplish any of the promises he made for the people of his section of San Francisco, which is why he was elected. Uh, and more or less, he comes to see Harvey Milk as kind of the the source of his misfortune and why when he yeah. resigns and then tries to go back on it, why he doesn't get his job back, which leads to him murdering the mayor and Harvey Milk himself. I think there are two things. One. You have a character, while Harvey Milk is on his way up, you see Dan White on his way down. What are you working on, Dan? If you have something to discuss, Harvey, you can have your aide make an appointment with my aide. Dan, I know you're upset about the psychiatric center. What else do you have coming up? Now you need something from me. (laughs) What do you want me to support the queers against Prop 6? Is that it? We prefer the term gay, Dan. Just as I'm sure you prefer the term Irish-American instead of Mick. Harvey, society can't exist without the family. We're not against that. You're not? What, can two men reproduce? No, but God knows we keep trying. (laughs) This isn't you, Dan. It's like you're channeling Anita and Briggs. We've got to be able to work together on something. Okay, Milk. Introduce an initiative for supervisor pay raises. Dan, we both have elections coming up. We can't do that. No, you asked for something. Introduce pay raises, because I can't take care of my family on our salaries. You don't have that problem, do you? You could have the sort of theory, and maybe there's no merit to this, but perhaps Dan White... uh, was in the closet. They meant they insinuate that, but I don't think that you necessarily need that for his narrative because you talk about Dan White on his way down, but there is really no high point for him because he he's a policeman turned fireman who gets elected city supervisor. Yeah. But he accomplishes nothing else <clears throat> besides that. Yeah. I mean he's talking about like the big thing he wants to get rid of this sort of medical center for troubled youths and things that it's in that's in his district yeah and that's like his big campaign promise and harvey milk doesn't back him up nobody backs him up like he invites people to the christening of his child harvey milk is the only person who shows up (laughs) from the city supervisors and it's like and he's like the odd man out the new guy he's he's like the new kid in school who nobody wants to talk to and it's like and he is more or less a marginal person. And usually those are the kinds of people who end up taking guns <laughs> and going to kill lots of people. Yeah. Well, they're the which people is... 
who feel like they're bullied, like in it, and in, not you know, as, not necessarily bullied, but that they can't they, accomplish anything. No, well, not even that. No, no, I don't mean that they get bullied, but they gain an inferiority complex. And maybe you know, and like someone like Dan White, when you're talking about him like this, I suddenly flash to something that doesn't sound like it should match, but um, like the 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 kids at Columbine. I had a feeling you were going to say that. I don't know. That just popped into my head just now when you're talking about marginal people who end up picking up a gun and shooting people, not because they were bullied. And there was the rumor that uh, those the Columbine killers were bullied, and they actually weren't, um, at least not to the extent that the media made it out to be. And what's interesting with Dan White is, yeah, he's the character who ends up um, you know, he's he's definitely the person who is driving the conflict in, in much of the film. Well, not really at all. I mean, no? Dan White, he barely, he's barely an antagonist because Harvey Milk, he passes a resolution for gay rights in the city of San Francisco. And the only dissenting voice is Dan White, but it doesn't matter. Everybody else goes with Harvey Milk. And it's all, but it's more or less a marker of his ineffect, of of Dan White's ineffectiveness hmm. because he could oppose it all want. He has no support from anybody. And the big conflict is fighting against proposition six, which is, which, uh, it was a California initiative to take yeah. away the, uh, uh to, yeah, that, that homosexual, movie, so right. Me. Like proposition six was back, was, uh, a law that was going to, that was up for a vote in California saying that, uh, homosexual teachers could be fired uh, for no for simply being right. homosexual, and anyone who supported them would also be fired. <clears throat> yeah. uh, and that is the climactic uh, struggle in Milk of uh, Harvey Milk debating people, trying to get support for people to vote down this proposition, which they do. That's his big triumph, and yeah. Dan White plays no part in that. Yeah, he I guess like so. he says some things about how he disagrees with Harvey Milk, but he's not a big he doesn't come up in the debate about Proposition Six. Doesn't he debate him in the movie? No. Why do I? Maybe not. Okay. Maybe he talks to him about politics and he tries to get him to support something, uh, but I he ultimately has no support for any of the stuff he wants to do. I and yeah. he is basically a non-entity. And so, then he resigns because of I forget what it was exactly that made him want to resign. Like um I I don't know. He he, he eventually decided to resign. Yeah. Uh and then he and then like he, there's a weird scene where he goes into the police office at the at city hall and then suddenly decides not to resign. And Harvey Milk's like and he probably had a lot of mental and it's at, problems. Well, but I don't think I don't even think so. And let's talk about the reason, like, in the movie that Harvey Milk is able to finally become supervisor. It's because they redraw all the districts in San Francisco oh, yeah, yeah. where the Castro uh, and uh, the Hate Ashbury become yeah. one district. Okay, and yeah. because of that, Harvey Milk is able to win that district and become a city supervisor. And the reason Dan White is be able, able to become a supervisor is because he gets voted in by the conservative Irish Catholic part of San Francisco. Hmm. But the Irish Catholic part is just as isolated as everybody else because it's the Chinatown elects their own thing. Like, they talk about this in the movie. Everything is redistricted, so all the little different mm. sections uh, with lots of minorities, like the black part of San Francisco and the Chinese part and yeah. uh, the Hispanic part, like, they can all elect 
uh, elect their own supervisors. And Dan White's only able to do this because, uh, you know, it's from the Irish Catholic uh, part of the city. And, but they are, but they are isolated basically from everybody else. So they're ineffective. And so, so the point is, though, you're trying to make is that Dan White is is a, a, is a fascinating character in this story that, you know, he's given some time and weight, and yet ultimately it's still Harvey Milk's story. Yeah. I, I just found him fascinating, Dan White. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, he is the person who kills Harvey Milk. Yeah. Uh, it's not a spoiler because it's history. And... He's ultimately an inconsequential part of the plot. I still remember the one part that suddenly pops in my mind is just this one moment where I think, like, I think, like, Dan White and Harvey Milk are having some conversation. Dan White's angry, and he just tells Harvey Milk, like, you you got you just, you got to stop humiliating me. Yeah. Yeah, And and that's the part where he comes off as pathetic because Harvey Milk isn't doing anything to him. And he somehow sees him as the source of his... Of his misfortune. I think maybe you could look at Dan White, if we're looking at sort of characters having some sort of symbolic resonance. Dan White, you know, again, you mentioned that he gets the Irish Catholic thing. He represents the old way of thinking in America. This sort of, I'm going to judge you because you're gay or because you're this or that before really judging you as a person. I'm going to really kind of be uptight about something and not look at you a certain way. Yeah, but there are plenty of people, but there are plenty of other people in the movie who do that too, who are more directly involved in the struggle. There Maybe. is, uh, what's her name? Anita, uh, what's the sort of evangelist who's trying to get, who's trying to, to fight against homosexual rights. Yeah. Uh, what's her name? She was... I'd have to look it up. Crap. Uh, but, and then there's also the state senator who introduces Prop 6. Yeah. Uh, and those are people who are, you know, very powerful enemies. They are like, they are the big antagonists. And why, and why Dan White is so fascinating, I think to me is that he's just, he plays, he's plays such a small part in Harvey Milk's struggles. He's almost a non-entity in the politics that he, that he joins. And like, but still he is the man who ends Harvey Milk's life because of whatever slights that he thought uh, he had performed against him. And it's like yeah. other assassins. It's like it's like Lee Harvey Oswald. What did he have against John F. Kennedy? And what kind of person was he in, 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 uh, in the grand scheme of things? He was just another marginal person. Or like Sirhan Sirhan or John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. No, I, I can sort of see what you're saying. It fits into this pattern of people who are just, uh, of people who take out their anger on other people in in deadly ways. Yeah. Because they feel marginalized by society. Yeah. And, it, well, and well, it, that, well, that itself could be its own point of the of the film. Man, you you make a you make a decent point. Yeah, and also another thing to consider, I, and it's just I I don't know why I just thought about this that you know Milk is directed by Gus Van Sant. Right, and this is my first Gus Van Zandt movie, actually. Oh, okay. Well, he also made the film Elephant, which is about Columbine. I mean, they don't really call it Columbine the movie, right? But, but that's also that's, a story. That's basically about, what it is. Yeah, it's all. It's a story of two guys following one day when two guys decide to go in their school and shoot up the school. Hmm. And what I love about Elephant is that um, the way that it's shot and presented. Um, 
you're you're watching this very tragic thing unfold, but little by little, and you're not really the the, the violence doesn't really happen until like the last twenty minutes of the movie, but you're watching just sort of life unfolding just naturally, and you're just seeing these people going about their lives, and these high schoolers who end up killing everyone. They're they're their own kind of marginal characters. Mm. That you're talking about it, so maybe Gus Van Sant has some sort of interest in sort of the marginal people who end up becoming really violent. Um, That's a an interesting point. Yeah, I don't know how it might relate to the rest of his filmography. I'd have to think about how does it relate to my own private Idaho. I don't know. Well, <laughs> all I I know you've probably flashed right now to Udo Kier. Sitting on a bullet, <laughs> thinking of power. You, you. I love that you can recite that just from watching the Welcome to the Basement. You watch you. it enough, you can recite anything. Uh, but one last thing: this film has a lot in common, which is probably not accidental with another with a film I've suggested for you, Gandhi. Okay. Uh, so you've seen Milk. You'll probably see those parallels right away. Except that Gandhi is a huge epic masterpiece, and this is a small epic masterpiece, which is uh, pretty awesome. This came in the mail today. You get the first bullet the minute you stand the microphone. Well, publicity's working. You don't have to go up there. The whole nation is watching. You have to do it. Created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights. 